You know, some people thrive on tests. You know them. They're the ones who come to class prepared on test day, pen or pencil in hand, eager to prove themselves once again. The teacher passes out the uh, test face down. These students are, are on the edges of their seats holding a corner of the paper ready for the teacher to say, turn your uh, papers over and begin. They flip the page and then begin writing furiously. They don't stop till they're done. It's like they hardly even have to think about it. Of course, they're usually the first ones done, practically dancing up the row, a big smile, handing the test in at the teacher's uh, desk. Another opportunity to demonstrate their superiority, preparation, and hard work. Then there's the rest of us. Maybe worked hard and prepared, but shaking hands are, are still sweaty, holding the pencil, nervously glancing around the room, wondering if you'll know the answers and pass the test. The, the last one to hand the test in when time is called or the bell rings, wondering until the test is finally graded in return how you did. And at that moment, there's nothing better than getting the test back with a good grade, even a positive comment from the teacher, usually written in red, great job, exclamation point. This is now our seventh sermon in the book of First John. If we were honest, We'd have to say it's been a little challenging, a, a little tough, a little, a little difficult. John's been a little hard on us. Well, actually on false believers who were spreading their lies. They'd left the church and they were seeking others to join them in their heresy and their supposed spiritual enlightenment. And so John takes them to task Three times in the first chapter, he targeted these false teachers saying things like, if we say, three times, if we say, if we say we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Please notice, we're lying to everybody. We're lying to people, we're lying to ourselves, and we're making God a liar. Very clearly, John is exposing false believers. Oh, they saw themselves as special, having arrived at some higher level of spiritual enlightenment. They were spiritual. Just ask them. Is ever a time for this book to, uh, to apply? It's to our generation. And yet, while claiming they had no sin, they walked in utter darkness. The truth was not in them. They were not true believers. They did not have eternal life. You see, John's going to say that when we get to chapter 5. In the two verses that precede the purpose verse that we know, these things I've written to you, that you can know that you have eternal life. Remember that verse? Well, he says before, um, and, the, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and the life, that is eternal life, is in his Son. And, and he who has the Son, that is Jesus, has the life. Now, he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Clearly, these people did not know the Son. They did not have the Son. They did not have eternal life. Well, John wasn't done. 
He, he, got, he gets to chapter 2 and said three more things. This time, instead of if we say, if, uh, if the one who says, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Stop right there. That's a little confusing. You see, in chapter 1, he said, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. Now he says, if we say we know him and don't keep his commandments, we're liars. So which one is it? Um, no sin on one hand and, not keeping, and keeping his commands on the other, not keeping his commands on the other. So which one is it? There is a balance. I want you to understand. And Jesus is in the middle of that balance. Remember verse 1 of, of chapter 2? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, the righteous. Do you see two extremes? Not keeping his commands, saying we have no sin. And Jesus is squarely in the middle, and to him we cling. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. The one who says he is in the light, we looked at this last week, yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And from those statements, as well as a, a cursory overview of the rest of the letter, we find that John is administering <laughs> a test, your favorite, with three questions. Uh, hands should be perhaps shaking a little, uh, maybe even sweaty, because to fail this test is more significant than not passing, uh, than failing a class or having to repeat a grade. And you have to pass this test with a score of 100%. You must get all of these questions correct or you fail the test. You see, if you miss just one of three, you get a 66. That's failing. Now, I don't know about this new grading system where everyone gets a participation ribbon. There will be no participation ribbons. I went to church every once in a while. Nope. You cannot fail this test. What is the test? Are you a genuine believer? Pass these three questions of this test. The theological question, I called them tests before, but go with me. The theological test. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh to die and be raised again as the propitiation for his people. You've got to believe the gospel. The moral test. You must seek to obey his commandments. You must pursue holy. It's not optional. John doesn't say you have to be perfect. Again, he says, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But the overall characteristic of your life is to walk in the light as he is in the light. Listen, to walk as Jesus walked. The relational test, you must love other Christians. It's not optional. And, and we will see in the rest of this book, this is meant to be an active love. In other words, this love does something. You can't just say, I kind of like people. No, you've got to do something about it. That love demonstrates itself with words of encouragement and actions of love. Now, I'm going to talk about uh, this more in the weeks to come. But you cannot say, listen, you cannot say you are spiritual, whatever that means. It sounds like some level of enlightenment. You reach some spiritual plateau, and, and maybe you would even say, well, I like Jesus. He's okay. I think he was a good man. Changed the world with his teaching, he did. But if you do not see him as the Son of God come in the flesh, there, there is no hope for you. 
if you try to be good most of the time. But you think the Bible is a little antiquated, archaic, out, outdated, and, and you believe in some new morality that you determine. Outside of what the Bible says, there is no hope for you. If you say you're spiritual, but you don't really like Christians, you think them intolerant, you think them bigoted, you really don't have that much to do with the church. There is no hope for you. I know that's strong, but it's true. Now, remember, it is only simple repentance and faith in Jesus that saves you. But seeking to obey his commands and loving other Christians, you can't separate Christianity from the church, okay? You, you can't do it. Seeking to obey his commands and loving other Christians proves that you have been saved. So again, three tests that John gives to ascertain the reality of the Christian faith. And maybe over the past six weeks, six sermons, you felt a little out of sorts, if you were honest, maybe even a little irritable. You've thought John or Scott to be a little too strong, a little difficult to swallow. I get that. John seems to understand that as well. Because in the text today, he, he seeks to, to encourage us, his readers, he knows that we're taking the test, hands sweating, palm, hands shaking, palms sweating. Oh, there may be those at the front of the line ready to prove themselves faithful, but for others, if you were honest, perhaps it's been a little challenging. And you've been wondering. I want you to see John this morning, the aged Apostle John, as your teacher, making his way up and down the aisles, offering words of encouragement. Great job, exclamation point, because that is the point of the text today in the middle of chapter 2. Look at it with me, verses 12 to 14. Josh already read it. Let's look at it again. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. There is nothing more glorious than that. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has, who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I want you... I want you to understand something incredibly important this morning. John did not write this letter to the false teachers, the false so-called believers who had left the church. We all know them, do we not? He's not writing to them. He's writing about them. He's writing to true believers who were struggling who had heard the words of the false teachers and were confused, maybe even tempted to follow those who had left the church. Maybe there is something outside of the church, and maybe there is something outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're struggling, and you're wondering, are they right? How do I know I'm right? How do I know I have eternal life? 
John, I want you to understand, is not writing to condemn his readers, but to encourage them and to give them tests, listen, that he expects them to pass, to give them assurance that they are indeed faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Remember that purpose verse? Uh, These things I've written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you fail the test, but having passed the test, you can have assurance. I want you to hear that this morning. I want you to be encouraged this morning. I, I remember Howard Hendricks. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Years ago, wrote a book called The Seven Laws of the Teacher. I don't remember the seven laws, but I remember him making this statement. Listen, the teacher is not teaching if the student is not learning. Wow. The teacher is not teaching if the student is not learning. Now, certainly the student, yes, I get it. They have the responsibility to apply themselves to learn. But the point is good teachers teach so that their students will learn. And a good teacher does not give a test to fail the student, but to pass the student, to ascertain if they have grasped the material. In fact, if a teacher gives a test and everybody fails, guess what? He hadn't done his job. So also, John, and frankly, I, want you to not only pass, not only grasp, but apply the material. Because these are serious tests. He expects us as true followers of Jesus to pass. I do too. And further, to demonstrate that those, listen, who deny the deity of Jesus that has come in the flesh, who, who live ungodly lives, who don't love other family members, are not Truly Christians. But also to encourage us and to to challenge us in these truths. Because the the fact that sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness, is a lifelong process in the life of the believer. We need regular encouragement, starting with that word. We need regular encouragement and admonition and confrontation and accountability to pursue Christ's together. That's what John is doing. So he gets to these verses and he seeks to encourage us. Yes, yes, I admit it's been a bit challenging, but now he says, I'm writing to you, not to them, to to you as children, to you as young men, to you as, as fathers, because your sins have been forgiven. You've overcome the evil one and, and you know him who has been from the beginning. So listen, this morning I want you to be encouraged. Listen, these are gospel benefits that, he had, that he's going to address in the rest of his letter. All of them except that, you know, you're strong. All of them. These are yours because of your faithful commitment to the gospel. Be encouraged. Now, I don't know about you, but through the years in my regular Bible reading, uh, whenever I've read these verses, I have to stop and kind of scratch my head a bit. I mean, they just kind of come out of nowhere. What, 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 John, what are you saying? What are you doing here? Very simply, he is reminding us, he is encouraging us by telling us who we are. In, in fact, while well, seemingly out of place, challenging to grasp. Most suggest that this is a high point in the letter. Some even suggest that this is the high point of the letter because he's writing not to discourage but to encourage us. And he does so today by highlighting the things that 
that, that, that are ours, that are, that are true of us. He reminds us who we are to strengthen our faith and encourage further spiritual growth. Be encouraged. There is an intentional literary rhetorical structure here. It's in a largely oral culture, he's trying to grab our attention and give us things by which we can easily remember. It's like when I say to you, hey, listen, or uh, to be clear, I know I say that a lot, or, or pay attention, or if you haven't heard anything else, say this. Those are all just devices I use, probably by rote, uh, to, 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 to get us to listen up, to pay attention. The structure here, John is seeking to do just that. Listen up. This is important. Let me show you. Three times he says, I am writing in the present tense. I've picked up the quill, and right now I I am writing. But then he says three times, I have written past tense. Is he referring to two different times of writing? No. He is simply saying, I am writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. Then he says, I have written, I have written, I have written. Have you heard? Have you read? Are you listening? He says it for emphasis because he largely repeats what he just wrote. I'm writing. I have written. Listen. Listen. Don't miss it. Then he identifies three groups of people. Children, young men, and fathers. Trust me, lots of discussion about that. Some suggest that he's writing to three groups of people who represent various Um, stages, uh, different ages or stages of the Christian life, children and then young and then old. Uh, That's possible, perhaps even likely. Others note when he says, my little children, so many times in this letter that that when he says, my little children, he's writing to everyone and then he divides the everyone into young and and old. Some of you are young and the old, some of you are old. That's also possible. Still others uh, note the use of the masculine. Young men and father. What happened to young women and mothers? Is he only writing to male believers? You women can check out? No. Most agree that's not the case. They are simply representative of the church family, much like, consider, much like it used to be proper English when we, when we were speaking of a group or, or, or speaking of, of someone that we didn't know the gender, we would use the masculine pronoun. That used to be proper. I know it's not anymore, but that's what you did. Or like many authors of Scripture would write often brothers, and we understand that he means brothers and sisters. In fact, when I read it, I'll often say it that way. certainly includes women. So, all that to say, I'm not fully convinced whether he's writing to three groups or just two. Here's the point I want you to get. We are at various stages of spiritual growth and development, all of us in this room. And we all want these things to be said of us at some point, as we mature in the faith. He's writing to these people who have not succumbed to false teachers. You haven't either. That's why you're here. Who have not succumbed to false teachers, who have not left the church. Hallelujah. So, so, so what does he say? To little children, I am writing to you because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. And as a result, you know the Father. I'm writing to you, young men, uh, because you have overcome the evil one, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. He's saying that to you. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Look at each one of these for just a moment. To little children, I am writing to you because your sins 
have been forgiven for his name's sake. Can I stop right there and say, don't ever let that statement become old to you. Your sins have been forgiven. This is the essence of the gospel. Because you see, people, what people? All people, by their sin, have rebelled against God's sovereign and and good rule. He said, don't, we did. He said, do, we didn't. And as a result, we have no relationship with him. We had no relationship with him as father. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus said to some Jews one day, you're of your father, the devil. So were we. We were accountable to him. And judgment for our sin was right and good and proper. Sinners that we were. God loved us anyway. And he sent his son, the Christ, God in the flesh, to do what we could, listen, never do. I mean never. In a minute, think, think groundhog life. If you lived a million lifetimes to do it over and over and over, you would never get it right. Because every time, you would be born dead in trespasses and sin. You might make it till two, till you started crying because you wanted something that you didn't have. In the midst of all of that, he atoned for our sins by bearing our sins in his own body, dying on a cross in our place, and by simple repentance and faith in Jesus, we can be saved from our sin and its consequent rightful judgment. Through faith in Jesus, our sins, my brothers and sisters, our sins are forgiven. This is the consistent message of the Scripture. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. It is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will, listen, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. What does he say here? You know God is your Father. You are... You are recipients of the provisions of the new covenant. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, because for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Whatever sin, however egregious, that still haunts you, forgiven. And God no longer holds it to your account. Central, this central truth is, is seen most clearly, as seen clearly in the sermons of Acts. Consider Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, having preached Jesus as the Christ, crucified and resurrected. Those listening were pierced to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? What do we do? We're sinners. And he said, repent, and, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
In, the, in his second sermon at the temple, after the heal, healing the, the lame beggar, he said in Acts 3, Therefore repent and, and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Glance through the book of Acts and you will find this was typical of, of, of every gospel presentation. The reason that we need to be saved is because we are sinners. I know. I know. You probably didn't even use you probably didn't even use that word this week. You probably didn't even tell your little kid you you little sinner. Even though they are. Our society doesn't use the word much anymore because sin is ultimately committed against God to whom we will one day give an account. So, just don't believe in God. Or your standards of morality or speaking societally, standards of morality are so horribly skewed and unbiblical that they don't actually believe in sin either. They've placed themselves on the throne of their hearts. They've elevated the self. I determine what's right and what's wrong. But sinners we are, and the very great news of the gospel is that Jesus, is that God through Jesus forgives our sins. Don't ever let that be old. In fact, please notice, for his, that is Jesus, for his name's sake. When the scripture speaks of a name like this, a name for his name's sake, it speaks of all that person is. It's support you understand that. For example, if I say to you, I come to you in the name of the president, you know that means a whole lot more than that I come to you in the name of Donald or Joe. It means I come to you in the name of the presidency and all that it represents. So when John says we are forgiven for his name's sake, it is because of who Jesus is, the Christ. Remember the first theological test? Because he is the Christ and what he accomplished when he came. Propitiation expiation, our sins removed, wrath of God averted, we are forgiven. Listen, not because of us. We don't deserve it. There's not, listen, we, we need to understand this. There's not some intrinsic value. Yes, I know we were created in the image of God, but there's not some intrinsic value that, that made God look at you and say, you are of value, I will die for you. No! It was because of him and his love for us. You were not a diamond in the rough. And he died for you anyway. We're forgiven. We don't deserve it. But because of him, for his name's sake. Notice something else critically important. Meant to be an encouragement to us. Pointed, I pointed out that John writes, in the present tense, I write... And then he writes in the past tense, I, I have written because, 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 six times, because, because, because. Every result of the reason that he writes is written in the perfect tense. I told you a few weeks ago, it's my favorite tense in the Greek. Because the perfect tense means that something happened in the past with ongoing effect. Every one of these is in the perfect tense. Here. Your sins are forgiven in the past with ongoing effect to the present day. Which means your sins right now, the ones you committed six years ago, six months ago, six weeks ago, maybe six minutes ago when you started ignoring me. I'm kidding about that. 
forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. When I meet with kids that talk to them about baptism, I ask them, when Jesus died on the cross, which sins did he die for? They'll, they'll say, all of them. I say, really, all of them? They say, yeah. I say, the ones you committed last month? Yeah. What about the ones you committed yesterday? Yeah. What about the ones you'll commit tomorrow? Little hesitation. Yeah. Right. Perfect tense. Your sins are forgiven in the past with ongoing effect to the present day. He's providing for us assurance of salvation because you have believed in Christ. Your sins were and are to the present day and will for all of eternity be forgiven. That is glorious. And as a result, you know the Father. Remember the false teachers were likely proto-Gnostics, that is pre-Gnostics. They claim to have a special knowledge and therefore a special relationship with God. John uses their word over and over to say, listen, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, because your sins are forgiven, you truly know the Father. Don't listen to those who want to entice you with something. I'm talking to 21st century. Don't listen to people who want to entice you with something besides the gospel, something besides Jesus. Maybe those people who have left the church, maybe those people out there who are saying, any old way will get you, don't listen sins are forgiven for his name's sake, for the sake of Jesus. And we are reminded that the only way to the Father, to be reconciled to God, to know the Father intimately in a parent-child relationship is through the Son. There is no other way except Jesus. Next, very quickly, to the Father's. We'll take, we'll take them in the order that John is writing. And next, he, he addresses the Father's. He says it twice. I write to you because you know him who has been from the beginning. The only difference in the second time they write, he says it, he says it in the past tense. I have written to you because they know him. You know him who has been from the beginning. Possibly because they are older, at least older in the faith, and have known Christ for some time now, perhaps even the beginning of gospel proclamation. These are more mature men and women who have the responsibility to care for and lead other believers. But it possibly, probably means you know Jesus who was from the beginning. And then we remember John 1, same author. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You actually know Jesus as God, who was with God in the beginning. And then we remember the first test. You know. Don't miss it. Perfect tense. You know. You knew then and you continue to know and you continue to grow in your knowledge of the one who is eternal with God throughout eternity. Third, to young men, I am writing to you. I have written to you because you have overcome the evil one. Clearly, the evil one refers to the devil in John's writings and other places. But what does it mean that you have overcome the evil one? Later, we'll see in chapter 3 that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, what are the works of the devil? That is certainly includes encouraging humankind's sinful rebellion against God. It, it includes his perhaps daily attacks against us, tempting us to sin, seeking to destroy us as he did Job, seeking to devour us through temptation to evil and perpetrating evil against us. I want you to know that when you declared yourself 
When you declared yourself a child of God through the work of Christ, you declared your allegiance to Jesus. You became a target of the evil one. Before you were his, remember? You were, you were children of the devil. Now you're of the enemy. But I want you to know, you overcame the evil one. This one who is evil through and through. Through their faith in Jesus, they've overcome this desire to tempt us, to destroy us. Don't, don't, don't miss how John, when he says it again, he kind of qualifies it just in case we get confused. In verse 14, yes, you have overcome the evil one, Satan himself, because you were strong. Yeah, boy, that's me. That's what young people think. Yeah, that's me. Because the word of God abides in you. This is how we defeat Satan, not in our own strength. We remember that even Jesus, when tempted in the wilderness, overcame Satan's temptations. How? By the very word of God. That's how you'll do it too. So when Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, so resist him. How? Stand firm in the faith. So when J James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, so do it, right? How do, I, how do I resist the devil? In your own strength? No. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Next verse, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. As you draw near to God, through his word, by his spirit, the devil will flee from you because he doesn't want to be anywhere God is. It's a new year. I'm encouraging you. You draw near to God this year by being a, per, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl in the word. That's how you're going to defeat the evil one who seeks to destroy you. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. You have overcome the evil one. Be of good cheer, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You've overcome the evil one. You are strong as the word of God abides in you. And you know him who was with God from the beginning. Listen carefully. Test past. Excellent job.